2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to continue uh, this Lord's Day afternoon looking at evangelistic praying. And we've looked at, first of all, the right attitude that we should have in coming to the Lord, a mature attitude coming to the Lord in prayer. And that is that we should be following the example of the Apostle Paul. That he had great sorrow and unceasing grief for his kinsmen according to the flesh. Those kinsmen who persecuted him and actually pursued him all across Asia Minor and sought to quench his evangelistic zeal in the preaching of the gospel. And yet, this is strange. All it did was increase his sorrow and his grief to give him an intense desire to pray for their salvation and to even search the Scripture about God's dealings with His own people. And as a result of that, we have in the book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11, a defense of God's dealing with those people. But again, what we're looking at is the attitude, the sorrow, the grief, the desire, and all of those coming together means not only attempting to reach those people, but to actually pray for them that they might be saved. Then we took a look at purposeful praying for a door. And that is that the Lord would open us up a door the door into a community or a door between one another within the congregation, but definitely a door, a purposeful door outside of our own sphere of influence. And so when you take that proper spirit and praying for it, and then you combine that with, all right, now you want an opportunity, you want a door of utterance to be able to speak to others. And I would dare say that whenever you do pray for that, you will find the Lord opening up that door. He is very faithful to do that. And then last Lord's Day, we took a look at that in light of this door, what we need is boldness. We need boldness to open up our mouths and proclaim the proper testimony of the Lord. And the way we looked at it was this. We actually looked at the opposite of boldness, which was, you remember what this word was? Shame. Or as the title of John MacArthur's book a long time ago, Ashamed of the Gospel, in his characterization of American Christianity. In light of us having a natural tendency to be ashamed, It means that we need a supernatural answer to our prayers for boldness. And what that means is, is that we definitely need to cast off that garment of shame and put on just a real confidence that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, the gospel really can save people today, And the gospel really can change people today. And so we need a restraint of our own shame, of our own sinful tendencies, 
We need to give the proper content and then we need with boldness and confidence to actually speak that. And then when we see, perhaps, <clears throat> it, might, it might differ, but when we see perhaps little results, we need to make sure that we don't pick up that garment of shame again. But keep it off and keep proclaiming and see what the Lord will do on behalf of His Son. Now this afternoon, <clears throat> I want to speak on praying for gospel success. And here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 1, <clears throat> Paul actually commands this church. This is not an exhortation. This is not just a request or an ask. This is a command, and he states, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 1, Finally, brethren, pray. That's the command. Pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. If the gospel is supernatural, and it is, then do we need to pray for its success? And the answer to that is yes. If it is supernatural and it is of God and it is His power, it means that we can't manufacture it. We can't just sit around and come up with a bunch of strategies that we think, now this is the strategies and this is what we're going to do to get certain results. In fact, in some ways, <clears throat> it's a little bit presumptuous to say, all right, I'm going to see 50 professions of faith this year. I think it'd be better to say, <clears throat> I'm going to boldly proclaim the gospel to people looking for that door every day this year, and then leave the results up to the Lord. He is the one who works in people's hearts, because sometimes we're there to sow seed. Sometimes we're there to water. And sometimes we're there to what? To actually harvest what others have done even before us. And so <clears throat> here is this prayer for gospel success. And you'll see that here. He speaks to the brethren and he speaks to this church. He commands the church that when they pray they do this, that the word of the Lord will <clears throat> spread rapidly. That would be a gift, wouldn't it? Verses one at a time, <laughs> but to spread rapidly <clears throat> and to be glorified, that is a certain measure of success to happen, for the gospel to spread rapidly, the King James says, half free course, and the result of that being spread rapidly is that it is glorified, it is enlightened, it is brought forth, manifested in this dark, dark world. It's like turning a flashlight on and it getting brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. The brighter it is, the further it extends out. <clears throat> Colossians calls this bearing fruit. Bearing fruit. And so here is this desire. And folks, really what we have here in 
the book of Thessalonians is we do have the example of what that would look like. And we know that because he says in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 1, he says, all right, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with who? With them, with the Thessalonians, with that church. So we do have an example in the Bible of what gospel success looks like. Now, if I was to ask you individually outside of this message, in other words, if I just came up to you and said, all right, do you want gospel success? I don't know of any believer that wouldn't raise his hand and say amen. We all want gospel success. But then if I asked you, well, what would that look like? We would probably get several different answers to that. Some people might say, well, gospel success would be numerical increase. And of course, if people are becoming disciples of Jesus Christ and they are adhering to the church of Jesus Christ, there would be numerical increase, but numerical increase in and of itself is that gospel success. Well, the old answer to that is, well, it depends. Some people might say, well, gospel success means professions of faith. A lot of churches see it that way. In other words, we went out on visitation, we went out and talked to people, or I spoke to people this past week, and I had three people profess Christ. Well, that's good. Amen? That's good. But is that what gospel success looks like? And as I mentioned before, we don't have to really get around and and bring our collective intelligences together to try to figure out what that is. We have an example of what that is. And so I want to take the remainder of this afternoon, and I want to look at what that gospel success looks like. So let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians <clears throat> chapter 1. Paul introduces this section, his letter, by saying, verse 2, that he gives thanks to God always for everyone in that church. And he makes mention of them in his prayers and their prayers. So when they pray together collectively, Paul and his team, they do mention the people here at Thessalonica that had come together into a church. When they're making mention of them, they do remember their time with them. Verse 3. They are constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Faith, love, and hope are the three evidences of a person being genuinely converted. It's in a small measure, perhaps, when they get converted, 
But they will have those three things. They will begin to see their faith work in them, that is, believing the objective Word of God. And of course, he's going to mention that here in the Thessalonica, that when they heard their preaching, they received it not as the Word of men, but as it is the Word of who? The Word of God. That's faith. So they had the work of faith. They had the labor of love. Now that they've been regenerated... They're no longer doing anything for selfish reasons as it is. They're doing it out of love for Christ and what Christ has done for them. And they're laboring there within the congregation and in the community. And then there's this which made them steadfast. And that is their hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, they're waiting. If you look down at verse 10, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. What gave them stability was looking for, looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ. And so they're just, you could say more about those three things, but at least those three things are there evident. And because of that, verse 4, Paul was confident to say, that they were people that were beloved of God. How so? God chose them. His choice of you. And so here we see evidences. We don't know, right, whether God has chosen us or not until we see the results of that being chosen. Faith and love and hope. When we see those supernatural things, even if they're in a small kernel, then that gives us confidence that we have been chosen by God. Or as Ephesians says, chosen before the foundation of what? Before the foundation of the world. Now Paul goes on, and I'm just going to read verses 5 down through the end of the chapter. And I want you to look and see if we can find out what gospel success looks like. Verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth, the King James has the word echo, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, as large as those geographical areas are, but also in every place, your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath of God. 
So what do we see here? <clears throat> we see here, first of all, a gospel powerful. It didn't just come to them factually. It didn't just come to them in a mere curiosity or to add to a multitude of idolatries that are out there or a multitude of different religions. This gospel came to them with power. And the Holy Spirit worked in their lives to give them this full conviction concerning Christ Himself. And the result of that, look at verse 6, is they followed the Lord. And they followed His messengers. Everybody see that in verse 6? They are imitators of us, Paul and his company, and of the Lord, in what way? They received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now that, that's unusual, isn't it? And folks, just as a side note, what you'll find with people is when you give them the gospel and the Holy Spirit is working in their life, what the flesh is doing in their spirit is arguing against what you're speaking to them. To where they actually become fearful of leaving a sin that they desire, or leaving friends that they know, or what the impact of this gospel is going to have upon their life. This is a slight type of tribulation, isn't it, that they are going through. But in the case of the Thessalonians, they actually had the culture against them also. And of course you know from 2 Thessalonians that some of them had actually gone to sleep in the Lord because of this trial. They received the word in much tribulation, but the reception of the word, even though they were in the midst of tribulation, they experienced joy. Joy from the Holy Spirit. And joy is a fruit of the Spirit, is it not? And that helps us understand what that fruit is. It's not just joy in the midst of happiness. Lost people can do that. It's joy in the midst of tribulation. That's supernatural. That is of the Lord. And that imitation and that reception of the Word and that delight in the Word by the Holy Spirit became a standard. Note verse 7. So that you became a what? You're an example. Here's an example people and an example church. Now we're looking and trying to describe what would gospel success look like. And we're already seeing intimidations of what that would look like already, right? What kinds of things would it result in? Joy. Reception of the Word. Faith. Love. Hope. Following Christ. Following the messengers that brought them Christ. Everybody see that? Or are you seeing some of that? And Here's the standard. Here's, here's the example that is out there 
so that we can know what Paul's praying for. He says, now I want you to pray for gospel success just like it was with you. But they were an example, verse 7, <clears throat> to all the believers. Now folks, all believers have experienced this. All believers receive the word of God. All believers end up having faith and love and hope. But what's going on here was so unusual that they themselves became an example to a large geographical area of believing people. That's an amazing thing because you never get kind of a sense, do you, that the church at Thessalonica was a huge church. Paul was only there how long? Okay. Some people think it's a month. Some people think it was a week. Depending on how you do the chronology. He wasn't there years. And he wasn't there months. Plural. Because he got driven out because of the persecution. So these people, this is unusual, these people had the power of God so work in their lives that they themselves became an example to all the believers not only, now look at verse 8, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in, in every place. Their faith was being talked about by other believing people. Now, do I need to remind you they didn't have internet? Do I need to remind you they didn't have smartphones and texting? Do I need to remind you that this had to occur mouth to mouth, person to person for it to be communicated from one believer to another believer to another believer this was such a move of the power of the gospel that the Thessalonians themselves are the example of what gospel success the, the pinnacle of what gospel success would look like and this is what Paul's praying for <clears throat> so I've got seven things here that I want to speak about briefly concerning this example. Number one, <clears throat> what the believers at Thessalonica did, and I'm using the King James word because I like it, they echoed the message. It says in verse 8, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Well, let's think about the word echo. An echo is like a ripple, isn't it? If you drop a rock in calm water and that rock hits that and what you have is a rippling effect that goes out. The Thessalonica church had heard the gospel and they took what they heard and they didn't change it. They didn't tone it down. They didn't massage it. They did what Paul prayed for or requested prayer for in the book of Ephesians. They spoke it with boldness. They echoed that message plainly. And could I say this, understood, they were not ashamed of it. Something had gripped them 
in the midst of their tribulation, and that was delight in Christ to the Lord and joy about what they had heard. And of course, you and I who, as we mature, we have probably looked back, I have, I've heard other people do this, look back and say, you know what, when I first got saved, I remember how many people I just told everywhere. Well, that's good. You don't want to go back to immaturity. (laughs) Okay? Maturity does bring a sobriety. But the sobriety shouldn't tone down our echoing of the gospel of Christ. So they echoed it. They spoke about it. When people came, they told about this faith in Christ. They repeated, not word for word, but they repeated and echoed the content that Paul himself and his apostolic team had communicated to them. And folks, this is what really needs to return to us, and if I would be bold, to the American church. We need to quit trying to massage it to make it palatable to people. We shouldn't be offensive for offense sake. But the gospel has its own offense. When you tell people that they're sinners, when you tell people that if they die in their sins, they're going to experience the second death, a lake of fire and brimstone forever, when you tell people No other religion is going to get you to heaven but Christ. This is offensive, and it's always been offensive, and it's even more offensive to modern American people. So what does that mean? Does it mean we shouldn't tell them? Does it mean that, and I'm using illustration that I've used before, and Spoken to an individual here about it, but if I'm trying to reach a Muslim, do I say, well, I'm not going to tell him that he's the Son of God? Am I just going to say, well, I know that that's offensive. Well, him being the Son of God is a kernel of what the Gospel is. John wrote what he wrote so that you might believe that he is the Son of God and that in believing that, you would have life through his name. But we have all kinds of things out there that are telling us, now tone it down. I mean, if you're offensive and they get mad at you, then what chance are you going to have to give them the gospel? Well, you may not have another chance. But you might have planted a seed deep enough that someone else will have a chance to follow up on that seed that you have planted in their hearts. Folks, the only way that you can break open a stony heart is with a jackhammer of the Word of God. I think it's Jeremiah when God says, isn't my word like a fire? Isn't it like a hammer that breaks the rock? And the answer to that is yes. They echoed the message. They repeated it. They didn't add to it. They didn't take away from it. They echoed it. They sounded forth that message and folks sometimes 
when I'm talking to people, I'm constantly asking myself, now, Lord, if you were here and I wasn't, what would you say to that person? And sometimes what comes to mind, I say, well, they're not going to like that. But that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to echo. We are ambassadors in whose stead? In Christ's stead. We're not there representing ourselves. Secondly, you'll notice in verse 8, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith, your faith toward God has gone forth. It's interesting that he didn't say the faith of Christ. He said their faith went forth. So how could we think about it? Well, I think we could think about it in, at least in this respect. When they echoed the knowledge of that message, it didn't come across as if they didn't believe it. Everybody following me? In other words, it didn't come across as, well, you could take it or leave it. It came across as, this is what I believe. And you need to hear this because it changed my life. And in my own personal testimony, and it is an antidote of one, but in my own personal testimony as a child, I did not go to services very much. But I remember as a child watching people interact in the parking lot of churches, watching Christians interact with one another and think to myself, well, if that's what Christianity is, well, that hasn't changed them at all. I just wanted to see that this gospel really was powerful. And when I was 20 years old, and I was there in that engineering office, and this man came by around the corner of my desk, and he just paused and glanced eyes with me, and I looked up at him and said, hey man, what's happening? And he turned around and pointed his finger at me, and he said, Jesus Christ, what hit me about that, other than the fact I wasn't expecting that, was that he spoke the name like he knew him. Not that he knew about him. You see the difference in what I'm saying? The Thessalonians' faith, they were echoing the message, but when people looked at their faith, they saw that it was real, and with the echo of the message, was the echo of their faith. Their faith went along with the message. This credible testimony. And the result of that was is that the hearers of that echoed message and their faith came to really know. 
Verse 8, so that in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything for they themselves report about us what kind of reception that we had with you. So part of what they were saying was, you know, these messengers came and this is what the message they gave us and this is the message that we're repeating and we came to believe that and our lives were changed by the grace of God. So that when Paul went out and he spoke to someone, perhaps in the marketplace, they would say, oh, we've already heard that message. The Thessalonians were giving a message, the same message that Paul was preaching, so that Paul didn't even have to say what? He had to say anything because the gospel message was being echoed and going forth out from that church. And when they came to know it, number four, those who heard it repeated it. Now, if they were believers, they were rejoicing, weren't they? But let's say a lost person heard it. Why would they repeat it? Because the news was so astonishing that they had to tell people about it and say, did you hear what happened to so-and-so? Did you hear what happened to Frank Jones on October 5th, 1980? Did you hear about... what? What? Tell me, what happened to him? And then they repeat it. Paul did not have to say anything because that message echoed out. And folks, that's what a gospel success would look like, right? People are regenerated. They have faith, love, and hope. They bind themselves together in a local New Testament assembly. They have joy over this message even though they're being what? Even though they're being persecuted. And they have so much joy that they're repeating it to other people so that like a ripple or an echo, it goes out into the area so that both believers and lost people are hearing this. Now what are they hearing? Well, they're hearing the gospel, aren't they? But folks, what would the gospel do if it's heard properly and received properly within power? Here's what gospel success would look like. Verse 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turn to God from what? you turn to God and when you hear that phrase you're thinking conversion you're thinking repentance right you turn to God from idols now idolatry in America is increasing Buddha's Statues of saints. These types of idols are increasing in America. Paganism is increasing in America. 
very rapid rate. What would gospel success look like? Well, you have all this result going on in the lives of these people. But one of the evidences of the gospel working powerfully in people is that they turn from the works of their own hands. They turn from the works of their own hands. They actually turn from the things that they are looking toward to save them. I gave the example of this man who is spending $2 million a year. Actually, I had a chance to read the whole article. It was like 10 or 12 pages. And he just says in there, he says, I have no plans to die. All right? Well, I don't have any plans to die either. Do you? He that believeth into me shall never what? Okay. My body will die, and then I'll get a new one. But he doesn't have any plans to die. All right? What is his idolatry? It's all the things he's looking toward to keep him youthful. And if you read the article, there, there, you can't even go into the details of all of it. <clears throat> Blood transfusions, blue light, certain temperatures, I mean, just, just everything, supplements, vitamins, just everything. Eating right, eating less than what your body needs, you know, all this type of thing. He's looking to those things, and I'm going to use the theological words, to save him. Right? Alright, what would happen if he got saved? Well, he might continue to be a little concerned about his health, right? But not anywhere close to that. Why is that? Because we're looking for someone else to save me. And that's Christ Jesus our Lord. He might take the normal precautions, doctor visits, physical checkups, maybe take a vitamin or two, take some antibiotics if you get sick, right? That, that's our normal procedure of life, right? But not spending anywhere, 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 anywhere close <laughs> to $2 million a year. That's his offering to the idol that he thinks is going to save him. And folks, when we get saved, we actually turn from the works of our own hands and then it continues to grow as we grow in Christ. Would you call that gospel success? And in their culture, their idolatry was woven into the culture so not to go to a pagan feast was not only to take a stand for Christ, it was to reject the culture in which you were living. That really takes a powerful work of the gospel, doesn't it? So what would gospel success look like? Well, you got a people in whom faith, love, and hope are operating in. 
You have a people that are echoing the message. You have a people that really believe that message. You have a people who are communicating to others, hey, did you know that this message came and I turned from idolatry? They're dead gods. There's no life in them at all. This is the one and true and living God. That was being communicated along with what you and I would call the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were showing their faith and adorning the gospel with that. Sixthly, <clears throat> verse 9 again. <clears throat> How you turn to God from idols to serve, to slave for a living and true God. We want to put it in the Lord's commission. We would say this, they turned from idols and became disciples of Jesus Christ. They were a learner, that's learning, follower, that's obeying. And they saw themselves as slaves to a living and true God. And folks, you'll notice, I've already mentioned this, but in verse 9, a living and true God is the exact opposite of a dead and false idol. Right? Here's the contrast. They turned to slave for the living and true God. <clears throat> and then lastly... Verse 10, not only did they turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God, but to wait for His Son from heaven, the one that God raised from the dead, the one whose name is Jesus, and He's the one that will ultimately rescue us not only from sin, but from the wrath to what? The wrath to come. <clears throat> they were waiting, <clears throat> not passively, but they were waiting actively for the arrival of God's Son, His second coming, to deliver them, to save them, to rescue them from the coming wrath. And folks, when you say that, when this is part of their faith that is being echoed, what you're telling the people is that there is a wrath coming. Right? They are not dodging the issue of hell and the second death. And that the only hope that they have from God's wrath is God's Son and His atoning work on that cross. So folks, does that help us see what gospel success looks like? And does it help us when Paul told the church, he commanded that church, now you pray <clears throat> for this gospel success. What does that look like? Just as it happened with you. Would they know that? 
They would know what that looks like. And so they would pray for that. Paul desired a duplication of the spread of the gospel and the glorification of the gospel in the lives of people just like what happened at Thessalonica. That was what he desired. He didn't get that everywhere, did he? He left Thessalonica, he goes down to Athens. He didn't see the same type of effect. He goes down, fear and trembling, preaches at Corinth. He sees an unusual movement of God and His Word there. So folks, all of these things help us know how to pray. How, How would we pray for our community, for our sphere of influence? Well, we have a responsibility to echo the message, to communicate that we really believe this, and what it's done for us in our life. And that what it had done is it turned us from the works of our own hands and our own idolatry. And it turned us so that we're learner followers, disciples of Jesus Christ. We just don't want to hear about Him. We want to love Him and obey Him. And our blessed hope is above the sun at the right hand of the throne of God. And He's coming back. When? Any moment. And He and He alone can save us and save you, the one you're talking to, from God's wrath. And it is coming. He promised it. So folks, all of those things really help us not only just to see genuine conversion, but to see what happens when the Lord gives an example of what gospel success would look like. How it would be victorious and take a victorious place in our lives, our church, and the church's life here in America. And what what a wouldn't you love to see this happen? You talk about being busy, you'd be really busy <coughs> discipling all these new believers. <laughs> Back in America, first great awakening, the preachers after there were so many conversions and so many people that they had to disciple, the preachers were actually getting sick from weariness. They were so tired. People were knocking on their doors at 2 a.m. in the morning wanting the gospel and they would get up and give it and then they would disciple and all this work of all this new people coming in. It literally wore them out. Now, I don't know if I'd like to be wore out or not, but I do know I would like to see gospel success again here in our nation. Let's pray for it. Our Father,